In this episode of Vanishing Gradients, I'll be speaking with myself. Well, I'll actually be reading three audio essays about the data science and machine learning spaces that I've written. This is the first time I'm experimenting with this form, so I'd be interested in your feedback. The best way to get in touch is currently on Twitter, although let's see how that pans out. I'm at Hugo Bound on Twitter, and the podcast is at Vanishing Data. The first essay I'll be reading is called Decision Making in a Time of Crisis and is about how to take a more principled approach to making decisions under uncertainty and aims to provide certain conceptual and cognitive tools for how to do so, not what decisions to make. These tools include how to, one, think probabilistically and understand the nature of predictions, two, consider risk not only in terms of likelihood, but also in terms of the impact of your decision, three, interrogate reported data and information with a healthy skepticism through thinking about the processes that generate the data, and four, prioritize which decisions to make and what actions to take in an uncertain world. Note that I wrote this essay in the early days of COVID when we weren't even sure how the virus was transmitted and many of us were washing our groceries. Now, the timing here is particularly apt, as the week after this episode comes out, I'll be recording a live episode of Vanishing Gradients with the data scientist, risk specialist, author, and raconteur, J.D. Long, about data science and making decisions under uncertainty. This will be a freewheeling conversation about all things data, machine learning, and decision science. You can sign up for that live stream at bit.ly slash decision hyphen science, and the link is also in the show notes. Now, the other two essays I'll be reading in this episode are called MLOps versus DevOps, Why Data Makes It Different, and the second is called When Models Are Everywhere. The first one, which I co-wrote with my colleague and friend, Ville Tulos, who is CEO at Out of Bounds, is about why MLOps has emerged as a macro trend. And we really seek to answer the questions, one, why? does machine learning need special treatment in the first place? Can't we just fold it into existing DevOps best practices? Two, what does a modern technology stack for streamlined machine learning processes look like? And three, how can you start applying the stack in practice today? Now, the third essay, When Models Are Everywhere, which I co-wrote with Mike Lukides, VP of Content Strategy for O'Reilly, takes a combination of sociological and technical points of view to reason through what begins to happen when we as humans interact with more and more machine learning models in our daily lives. These three essays are all published on O'Reilly Radar, and the links are in the show notes, so check them out if you're interested. Just before we jump in, it would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice. And if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. As always, if you don't like it, please do not write us a review. I am your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Decision-making in a time of crisis. In the 1996 cult classic film Swingers, two friends, Trent and Mike, 
make an impromptu trip to Las Vegas. At the blackjack table, Mike gets dealt an 11 and Trent tells him to double down. Mike responds, what? And Trent replies, double down, baby. You got to double down on an 11. Mike doubles down and loses the hand. The next scene opens with, Trent, I'm telling you, baby, you always double down on an 11. Mike, yeah? Well, obviously not always. Trent, always, baby. Mike, I'm just saying not in this particular case. Trent, always. Mike, but I lost. How can you say always? All right, so Mike had made the common error of equating a bad outcome with a bad decision. The decision-making process was fine. We know statistically that doubling down on an 11 is good and common as a strategy in blackjack. But when making a decision under uncertainty about the future, two things dictate the outcome. One, the quality of the decision, and two, chance. The quality of the decision is based on known information and an informed risk assessment, while chance involves hidden information and the stochasticity of the world. The latter resulted in Mike losing his blackjack hand. It was luck, not the decision to double down. We currently have a lot of serious and challenging decisions to make at personal, societal and global levels, and none of them are as simple as a game of blackjack. This essay is about how to take a more principled approach to making decisions under uncertainty and aims to provide certain conceptual and cognitive tools for how to do so, not what decisions to make. These tools include how to, one, think probabilistically and understand the nature of predictions, two, consider risk not only in terms of likelihood, but also in terms of the impact of your decisions, three, Interrogate reported data and information with a healthy skepticism through thinking about the processes that generate the data. Four, prioritize what decisions to make and what actions to take in an uncertain world. There are two key differences between the types of decisions we need to make currently and Mike's decision to double down in blackjack. Firstly, in cases such as reopening economies, the decision space is not binary. It's not reopen the economy or not. It's how, how much, when, and how do we know when to reel it back in? Secondly, we know the odds in blackjack. It will take you some time, but you can write down a table of all the probabilities. When we know the probabilities of the important variables but don't know the outcomes, it's called risk. When we don't know the probabilities or even what all the important variables are, it's called uncertainty. Recognizing the difference between risk and uncertainty is essential to knowing when you can and cannot completely calculate and assess risk. Thinking how to assess decision quality as opposed to outcome quality in both cases is key, though, as Swingers makes clear. Thinking in Bets, Annie Duke's 2018 book about making decisions under uncertainty has many analogous examples operating under both risk and uncertainty such as the infamous 2015 Super Bowl Seahawks decision to pass the ball in the final 26 seconds. The pass was intercepted, the Seahawks lost, and we saw countless headlines such as dumbest call in Super Bowl history could be beginning of the end for Seattle Seahawks, and Seahawks lost because of the worst call in Super Bowl history. Now, as Duke astutely points out, Agreeing with several commentators, such as 538's Benjamin Morris and Slate's Brian Burke, the decision to pass was eminently defensible, as in the previous 15 seasons, the interception rate in that situation was about 2%. Tellingly, 
When Duke asks business executives to write down their best and worst decisions of the past year, they invariably write down the best and worst outcomes. It is all too human to judge decisions by their outcomes. Duke refers to this as resulting. Now, we need to rationally decouple decision quality from outcome quality. One challenge of this is that we are often evaluated on outcomes, not decisions, for the most part. A chief sales officer, for example, is evaluated on deals closed and annual recurring revenue, not the decisions they make per se. The success of a company is likewise determined by outcome quality, not decision quality. However, as with Blackjack, if we are to evaluate decision-making by looking at outcomes, it is more productive to look at the long-run frequencies of good and bad outcomes to evaluate both the decision and the strategy that led to the decision. In the long run, the fluctuations of chance will average out. Another key barrier to rationally evaluating decision quality is that we're not adept with dealing with uncertainty and thinking probabilistically. We saw this after the 2016 US presidential election when people said that the pollsters' predictions were wrong because they had Clinton as the front runner. But a prediction that Clinton had a 90% chance of winning was not an incorrect prediction, even when Trump won. Trump winning was merely that 10% chance playing out in reality. The statement, the prediction was wrong, is assessing the quality of the prediction based on the outcome, committing the same error as assessing the quality of a decision based on outcome. It's resulting. For this reason, let's drill down a bit into how bad we really are at thinking probabilistically and dealing with uncertainty. To do so, let's stick with the example of the 2016 US election. Making predictions and thinking probabilistically. Many intelligent people were surprised when Donald Trump won the presidency, even though 538 gave him a 29% chance of winning. Alan Downey, professor at Olin College, points out that a 29% chance of winning is more likely than seeing two heads when flipping two coins, which has a 25% chance, an occurrence that wouldn't surprise any of us. Even if we believe the forecasts that gave Trump a 10% chance of winning, this is just slightly less than seeing three heads in three coin tosses, 12.5%, which also would not surprise many people. Consider a 10% likelihood in this way. Would you board a plane if the pilot told you it had a 90% chance of landing successfully? As Nate Silver asks in The Signal and the Noise. Now, why are we so bad at interpreting probabilistic predictions, such as the probability of Trump winning the presidency? One possibility, suggested by Downey, is that we generally interpret probabilistic predictions as deterministic predictions with a particular degree of certainty. For example, Clinton has a 90% chance of winning would be interpreted as the poll says Clinton will win and we're 90% sure of this. As Downey says, if you think the outcome means that the prediction was wrong, that suggests you are treating the prediction as deterministic. Forecasters and pollsters are aware of this deep challenge. Nate Silver and 538 have put substantial thought into how to report their probabilistic forecasts. In the 2018 midterm elections, for example, they began to make forecasts such as one in five chance Democrats win control, four in five chance Republicans keep control, which is careful to express the probabilistic nature of the prediction. I recalled this mindful use of language when I recently had a COVID-19 test and the doctor reported the test did not detect the presence of COVID-19. Instead of, the test came back negative. Language is important, particularly in situations where our intuition doesn't work well, such as in probabilistic forecasts and data reporting. 
So knowing that we need to make sure we judge decision and prediction quality based on what was known at the time of decision or prediction, respectively, how do we go about thinking through the risks to make decisions in the first place? Risk, probability, impact, and decisions. I've had many discussions around risk assessment and decision-making with respect to COVID-19, as we likely all have recently. One common and concerning through-line is that many people appear to make risk assessments based on likelihood without considering impact. For example, in different conversations, I told several friends that my COVID-19 tests had come back negative. Each friend replied along similar lines, saying that it meant I could visit my parents, who are both in high-risk groups. Ignoring the false negative rate, I replied that it would still be possible for me to pick up COVID-19 after the test and take it into their house. And my friend's responses were all, but it is so unlikely. Now, this may be true, but the downside risk in this case could be fatal. When making decisions under uncertainty, it is a mistake to consider likelihood alone. You need to consider impact. For example, let's say there's a burger that you've heard is great and really want to try it. If there's a 20% chance it will give you some mild stomach trouble, which is possible but low impact, perhaps you'll still try it. If there's a 0.1% chance, one in a thousand, that it will kill you, this is very unlikely but high impact, I'd be surprised and or concerned if you decided to eat it after assessing the risk. This example, although a bit silly and perhaps delicious, has many elements of what you need to make decisions under uncertainty. Consideration of likelihood of different potential outcomes. Upside risk, in this case, enjoying a delicious burger, and downside risk, in this case, stomach trouble and dying, respectively. Now, imagine a different scenario. Instead of eating a burger, we're talking about surgery to cure a painful but not life-threatening condition, spine surgery, for example, and there's a one in a thousand chance of death. The downside risk is the same, fatal, but the upside risk is a lot more impactful, than eating a burger. So there's an increased chance of you taking on the downside risk. So instead of viewing a risk assessment along the sole axis of likelihood, we also have to consider impact. One useful tool for doing this is known as a risk matrix, which is common in business settings, a table that has axes, likelihood, and impact. And if you're interested in checking out an example risk matrix, I encourage you to look a figure in the article, uh, which is linked to in the show notes. So to this end, deciding whether to wear a mask outside is a current example in terms of thinking through likelihood and severity of impact in a risk matrix. There are multiple personal and societal risks to consider. Wearing a mask reduces the transmission of COVID-19. Upside risk, particularly important given the risk of being an asymptomatic transmission vector. But if we all go out and panic by PPE masks, there'll be a devastating lack of supply for frontline healthcare workers. Downside risk. Note that the risk is not explicitly for us, but for frontline healthcare workers and by extension society. So in this case, we're thinking about making individual decisions based around societal, not only personal risk. Once you then realize that we can all avoid this downside risk by making masks from household items or buying cotton masks online from dressmakers and shirt makers, the decision to wear a mask is a no-brainer. This example also illustrates how the decision space can be a lot larger than originally envisioned. The choice is not merely between wearing a mask that a doctor or nurse will need or not. There are always more options than are first apparent. Our work is to find the ones that minimize risk. 
We saw this play out as the CDC and many governments went from recommending only people who have symptoms to wear masks to recommending that everybody wear masks. Now, this is a guide for how to think about making decisions, not what decisions to make. The decisions any individual makes are also a function of how risk-friendly and risk-averse that individual is. Financial advisors are known to provide questionnaires to determine where their clients lie on the risk-friendliness aversion spectrum and advise accordingly. I'm generally risk-friendly, for example, but when it comes to a global pandemic and matters of life and death, I am highly risk-averse. I would encourage you to be also and remind you that your actions impact potentially a huge number of people, even if you yourself are in a low-risk group and not particularly concerned about your own health. At a far larger scale of decision-making, governments need to make decisions around when and how to reopen economies. They need to consider a number of things, in particular, the fact that we have a public health crisis and a resulting economic crisis, which feeds back into the public health crisis, along with creating its own health crises, which economic downturns are known to. Ideally, we could reopen the economy to an extent that will not exacerbate the COVID-19 crisis, but enough to reduce the economic crisis and all the downstream effects. This is once again opening up the decision space. It's not reopen the economy or not, it's figuring out when to and by how much. Figuring out likelihoods and impact of all our governmental decisions is incredibly challenging work. It's same on a personal level. We need to consider both the likelihood of outcomes resulting from our different decisions, along with their impact. But how can we actually do this? Having good quality information is key, as is knowing what our blind spots are, that is, knowing what we don't know. So let's now dive into thinking about the quality of the data we're seeing every day and what type of information and knowledge we can extract from it. Data, information, knowledge, and decision-making. One of the most important steps in acknowledging what our blind spots are is knowing the limitations of the data and information that we receive. For example, when we see a chart of the number of reported cases of COVID-19 over time, it is natural and tempting to think of this as a proxy for the evolution of the number of actual cases. I've heard rational humans make statements such as, it may not be quite right, but it's all we have and probably captures the trend. But it may not even do that. The number of reported cases is a function of many things, including the number of tests available, the willingness of people to be tested, the willingness of any particular government to report their findings, and a time lag resulting from the COVID-19 incubation period. In terms of government incentives to report their findings, it's also key to keep front of mind that the reporting of a COVID death is both a political and politicized act. There has been huge skepticism of official counts coming out of China. And as we reopen cities across the world, governments will be incentivized to under-report cases, both to justify the decisions to reopen and in the name of protecting economies. In terms of the number of reported cases being a function of the number of available tests, take this extreme limit case. One day there are no tests, so no reported cases, and the next day there are a huge number of tests. In this case, even if there were a decrease in the total number of actual cases, a huge spike would be reported. As a real-world example, Nate Silver reported, begin quote, Washington State is a good example of the importance of accounting for the number of tests when reporting COVID-19 case counts. Remember I mentioned a couple of days ago how their number of cases in Washington had begun to stabilize? Well, guess what happened? 
To date, they reported 189 positives, along with 175 yesterday, as compared with an average of 106 positives per day in the seven days before that. So, not great on the surface. New cases increased by 70%, but you also have to look at the number of tests. Washington conducted 3,607 tests today and 2,976 yesterday. By comparison, they conducted an average of 1,670 tests in the seven days before that. So they've increased testing capacity by 97% over their baseline. Meanwhile, detected cases have increased, but by only 70%. Looked at another way, today, 5.2% of Washington's tests came up with a positive result. Yesterday, 5.9% did. In the seven days before that, 6.4% of them did. So there is a bit of progress after all. Their number of new positives as a share of new tests is slightly declining. For the time being, one, the large, perhaps very large majority of coronavirus positives are undetected. And two, test capacity is ramping up at extremely fast rates, far faster than coronavirus itself would spread even under worst case assumptions. So long as those two things hold, the rate of increase in the number of detected cases is primarily a function of the rate of increase in the number of tests and does not tell us that much about how fast the actual infection is spreading. Silver went on to write an article entitled, Coronavirus Case Counts Are Meaningless, with a subtitle, Unless You Know Something About Testing, and even then it gets complicated. In a similar manner, the number of reported deaths is also likely to be a serious underestimate because in many places, to be a reported COVID-19 death, you need to be tested and diagnosed. Bloomberg reports that, in reference to Italy, many will die in their houses or nursing homes and may not even be counted as COVID-19 cases unless they're tested post-mortem. As Dr. Anthony Fauci, one of the top US government infectious disease experts and member of 45's COVID-19 task force, stated, there may have been people who died at home who did have COVID, who are not counted as COVID because they never really got to the hospital. It's important to stress that this undercounting will disproportionately impact demographics that have less wealth and less access to healthcare, including those already structurally oppressed, such as people of color. One way to correct for this bias in the data is to look at the statistics of excess deaths, the number when compared with previous years. A conceptual tool that I like to use when thinking about these types of biases in the data collection and data reporting processes is Wittgenstein's ruler, as introduced by essayist, statistician, and professional provocateur Nassim Taleb in Fooled by Randomness. Begin quote. Unless you have confidence in the ruler's reliability, if you use a ruler to measure a table, you may also be using the table to measure the ruler. End quote. The first concept here is that if your measurement device is broken, whether it be a ruler or a pandemic testing system, it's not telling you anything of value about the real world. Worse, it may be providing incorrect information. The second concept is that if you find out something about the length of the table by other means, you may be able to infer properties of the ruler. In our current case, this could mean if in our current case, this could mean that if we knew more about actual death rate by, for example, considering the statistics of excess deaths, we could infer the flaws in our reported deaths data collection analysis and reporting processes. Moreover, data collection and data reporting are political acts and processes embedded in societies with asymmetric power relations, and most often processes controlled by those in positions of power. In the words of Catherine D'Ignazio and Lauren F. Klein in Data Feminism, 
Governments and corporations have long employed data and statistics as management techniques to preserve an unequal status quo. It is a revelation to realize that the etymology of the word statistics comes from the term statecraft and the ability of states and governments to wield power through the control of data collection and data reporting. They decide what is collected, reported, how it's reported, and what decisions are made. The major takeaway from this section is to approach reported data with an educated skepticism, recognize the potential biases in reported data, and realize that there is a huge amount of uncertainty here. Easier said than done, of course, particularly when we live in a world of information glut and the sheer number of decisions we need to make seems to increase daily. So how do we think about incorporating information into our decision-making processes? And how do we prioritize which decisions to make and actions to take? Information anxiety, decision fatigue, and the scale of things. In The Signal and the Noise, Nate Silver points out that we're drowning in information and we think we want information when we really want knowledge. What we really now need is knowledge, which involves understanding and an ability to incorporate this knowledge into our decision-making processes. The number of decisions that a modern human has to make daily, consciously or otherwise, is staggering. Estimates are around 35,000. Decision fatigue is real when one is faced with too many decisions, one after the other. Decision paralysis and the tyranny of choice are real, particularly in light of the vast swathes of content on display in the marketplace of the attention economy. This is why terms such as information anxiety, infobesity, and infoxication have evolved. And this was all pre-COVID-19. Now we have a huge number of potentially fatal decisions to make and information to take in on so many scales. On the nanometer scale, the size of the coronavirus particle. On a micro scale, what did I just touch? Could I have picked up a particle? On a bodily scale, when touching one's nose by accident. On an apartment or household scale, when bringing deliveries and groceries in. On a family, professional, and small social network scale, who have I interacted with? Who can I interact with? On suburban, urban, state, national, and global scales, quarantine, lockdown, and shelter-in-place orders, supplies for hospitals, the closing of schools, shutting down the economy. When contemplating the size of the universe in his pensées, or thoughts, Blaise Pascal exclaimed, The eternal silence of these infinite spaces frightens me. This would be a reasonable reaction to COVID-19, although one should also include an anxiety at the other end of the scale, the anxiety about the virus itself. From this perspective, as a global species, we're stuck in the middle of a set of unforgiving scales that produces deep personal anxiety, global anxieties, and everything in between. This is all to say that making decisions under uncertainty is tough, and we're not great at it, even under normal circumstances. During a global pandemic, it's infinitely more difficult. We need to prioritize the decisions we want to make, such as, for example, those involving the health of ourselves and those closest to us. When there are so many decisions to make, how do you go about ranking them in terms of prioritization? A good heuristic here is to map out the space of possibilities resulting from your decisions, a practice called scenario planning, and prioritizing the ones that have the largest potential impact. In Thinking in Bets, Duke provides the example of After School All Stars, also called Azaz, a national nonprofit she consulted. Azaz needed to prioritize the grants they were applying for. They'd been prioritizing those that were worth the most, even if they were very unlikely to receive them. Duke proposed the grants with highest expected value, that is, the total award grant multiplied by the estimated probability of receiving the grant. So, 
in this case, a grant of $100,000 that they would win 10% of the time would be valued at $10,000. A grant of $50,000 that they would win 50% of the time would be valued at $25,000. In Azaz prioritization scheme, the first one would be prioritized in Dukes, the second one would. It's worth less, but five times more likely. You may, of course, recognize that we're talking about a combination of likelihood and impact there, uh, funnily. What Duke is implicitly performing in this calculus is scenario planning by looking at two possible futures, awarded or declined uh, post-application, and averaging over them with respect to the probability of each. For more on scenario planning, I encourage you to check out Peter Schwartz's The Art of the Long View, Planning for the Future in an Uncertain World, along with Tim O'Reilly's recent essay, Welcome to the 21st Century, How to Plan for the Post-COVID Future, which plays fast and loose with some of its ideas. Those are Tim's words. Most real-world cases are nowhere near as clean-cut and consist of many cross-cutting decisions with varying levels of risk and uncertainty. However, taking a more principled approach to decision-making and prioritization by considering likelihood, impact, and scenario planning will improve decision quality. So will thinking more critically about risk uncertainty, what the data we have actually means, and what information we really have about the world, as well as acknowledging our blind spots. In a word, making better decisions requires us to be more honest about uncertainty. This next essay, as I mentioned before, is called MLOps versus DevOps, Why Data Makes It Different, and I co-wrote it with Ville Toulos. As some of you may know, a huge part of my professional mission is to help scientists do better science. And part of my interest in MLOps stems from it being situated precisely at the intersection of science and software. So essentially, we need new paradigms, tools, abstraction layers, and cultural shifts to facilitate software becoming scientific. That is, software that interacts with the messiness of the real world through data and through scientific processes and methodologies. This in itself was a big motivation for us to write this essay. Now, for illustrative purposes, we also mention a significant number of tools and frameworks for machine learning and machine learning infrastructure, uh, including Metaflow, an open source framework that Ville and I work on. So I thought to let you know that before diving in. So now, without further ado, let's do it. MLOps and DevOps, why data makes it different. Much has been written about struggles of deploying machine learning projects to production. As with many burgeoning fields and disciplines, we don't yet have a shared canonical infrastructure stack or best practices for developing and deploying data-intensive applications. This is both frustrating for companies that would prefer making ML an ordinary, fuss-free, value-generating function like software engineering, as well as exciting for vendors who see the opportunity to create buzz around a new category of enterprise software. The new category is often called MLOps. While there isn't an authoritative definition for the term, it shares its ethos with its predecessor, the DevOps movement in software engineering. By adopting well-defined processes, modern tooling, and automated workflows, we can streamline the process of moving from development to robust production deployments. This approach has worked well for software development, so it's reasonable to assume that it could address struggles related to deploying machine learning in production too. However, this concept is quite abstract, just 
introducing a new term like MLOps doesn't solve anything by itself. Rather, it just adds to the confusion. In this article, we want to dig deeper into the fundamentals of machine learning as an engineering discipline and outline answers to key questions. One, why does ML machine learning need special treatment in the first place? Can't we just fold it into existing DevOps best practices? Two, what does a modern technology stack for streamlined ML processes look like? Three, how can you start applying the stack in practice today? Why? Data makes it different. All ML projects are software projects. If you peek under the hood of an ML-powered application, these days you will often find a repository of Python code. If you ask an engineer to show how they operate the application in production, they will likely show containers and operational dashboards, not unlike any other software service. Since software engineers manage to build ordinary software without experiencing as much pain as their counterparts in the ML department, it begs the question, should we just start treating ML projects as software engineering projects as usual? Maybe educating ML practitioners about the existing best practices? Let's start by considering the job of a non-ML software engineer. Writing traditional software deals with well-defined, narrowly scoped inputs, which the engineer can exhaustively and cleanly model in the code. In effect, the engineer designs and builds the world wherein the software operates. In contrast, a defining feature of ML-powered applications is that they are directly exposed to a large amount of messy, real-world data which is too complex to be understood and modeled by hand. This characteristic makes ML applications fundamentally different from traditional software. It has far-reaching implications as to how such applications should be developed and by whom. One, ML applications are directly exposed to the constantly changing real world through data, whereas traditional software operates in a simplified, static, abstract world, which is directly constructed by the developer. Two, ML apps need to be developed through cycles of experimentation. Due to the constant exposure to data, we don't learn the behavior of ML apps through logical reasoning, but through empirical observation. Three, the skill set and the background of people building the application gets realigned. While it is still effective to express applications in code, the emphasis shifts to data and experimentation, more akin to empirical science rather than traditional software engineering. Now, this approach is not novel. There is a decades-long tradition of data-centric programming. Developers who have been using data-centric IDEs such as RStudio, MATLAB, Jupyter Notebooks, or even Excel to model complex real-world phenomena should find this paradigm familiar. However, these tools have been rather insular environments. They are great for prototyping, but lacking when it comes to production use. To make ML applications production ready from the beginning, developers must adhere to the same standards as all other production-grade software. This introduces further requirements. One, the scale of operations is often two orders of magnitude larger than in the early data-centric environments. Not only is data larger, but models, deep learning models in particular, are much larger than before. Two, modern ML applications need to be carefully orchestrated. With the dramatic increase in the complexity of apps, which can require dozens of interconnected steps, Developers need better software paradigms, such as first-class DAGs. Three, we need robust versioning for data, models, code, and preferably even the internal state 
of applications. Think Git on steroids to answer inevitable questions. What changed? Why did something break? Who did what and where? And when? How do two iterations compare? Four, the applications must be integrated into the surrounding business systems so ideas can be tested and validated in the real world in a controlled manner. Now, two important trends collide in these lists. On the one hand, we have the long tradition of data-centric programming. On the other hand, we face the needs of modern large-scale business applications. Either paradigm is insufficient by itself. It will be ill-advised to suggest building a modern ML application in Excel. Similarly, it would be pointless to pretend that a data-intensive application resembles a run-of-the-mill microservice, which can be built with the usual software toolchain of, say, GitHub, Docker, and Kubernetes. We need a new path that allows the results of data-centric programming, models, and data science applications in general to be deployed to modern production infrastructure. Similar to how DevOps practices allows traditional software artifacts to be deployed to production continuously and reliably. Crucially, the new path is analogous, but not equal to the existing DevOps path. What? The modern stack of ML infrastructure. What kind of foundation would the modern ML application require? It should combine the best parts of modern production infrastructure to ensure robust deployments, as well as draw inspiration from data-centric programming to maximize productivity. While implementation details vary, the major infrastructural layers we've seen emerge are relatively uniform across a large number of projects. Let's now take a tour of the various layers to begin to map the territory. Along the way, we'll provide illustrative examples. The intention behind the examples is not to be comprehensive, perhaps a fool's errand anyway, but to reference concrete tooling used today in order to ground what could otherwise be a somewhat abstract exercise. Foundational infrastructure layers. Data. Data is at the core of any ML project, so data infrastructure is a foundational concern. ML use cases rarely dictate the master data management solution, so the ML stack needs to integrate with existing data warehouses. Cloud-based data warehouses such as Snowflake, AWS portfolio of databases like RDS, Redshift, or Aurora, or an S3-based data lake are a great match to ML use cases since they tend to be much more scalable than traditional databases, both in terms of the data set sizes as well as qu query patterns. Compute. To make data useful, we must be able to conduct large-scale compute easily. Since the needs of data-intensive applications are diverse, it's useful to have a general-purpose compute layer that can handle different types of tasks from IO-heavy data processing to training large models on GPUs. Besides variety, the number of tasks can be high too. Imagine a single workflow that trains a separate model for 200 countries in the world, running a hyperparameter search over 100 parameters for each model. Now, this workflow yields 20,000 parallel tasks. Prior to the cloud, setting up and operating a cluster that can handle workloads like this would have been a major technical challenge. Today, a number of cloud-based auto-scaling systems are easily available, such as AWS Batch. Now, Kubernetes, a popular choice for general-purpose container orchestration, can be configured to work as a scalable batch compute layer, although the downside of its flexibility is increased complexity. Note that container orchestration for the compute layer is not to be confused with the workflow orchestration layer, which we'll cover next. And just know that these are a lot of terms which are increasingly overloaded, so we all feel the, the same pain there. Orchestration. The nature of computation is structured. We must be able to manage the complexity of applications by structuring them, for example, as a graph 
or a workflow that is orchestrated. The workflow orchestrator needs to perform a seemingly simple task. Given a workflow or DAG definition, execute the tasks defined by the graph in order using the compute layer. There are countless systems that can perform this task for smaller DAGs on a single server. However, as the workflow orchestrator plays a key role in ensuring that production workflows execute reliably, it makes sense to use a system that is both scalable and highly available, which leaves us with a few battle-hardened options. For instance, Airflow, a popular open source workflow orchestrator, Argo, a newer orchestrator that runs natively on Kubernetes, and managed solutions such as Google Cloud Composer and AWS Step Functions. Software development layers. While these three foundational layers, data, compute, and orchestration, are technically all we need to execute ML applications at arbitrary scale, building and operating ML applications directly on top of these components would be like hacking software in assembly language, technically possible, but inconvenient and unproductive. To make people productive, we need higher levels of abstraction. Enter the software development layers. Versioning. ML app and software artifacts exist and evolve in a dynamic environment. To manage the dynamism, we can resort to taking snapshots that represent immutable points in time, of models, of data, of code, and of internal state. For this reason, we require a strong versioning layer. While Git, GitHub, and other similar tools for software version control work well for code and the usual workflows of software development, they're a bit clunky for tracking all experiments, models, and data. To plug this gap, frameworks like Metaflow or MLflow provide a custom solution for versioning. Software architecture. Next, we need to consider who builds these applications and how. They are often built by data scientists who are not software engineers or computer science majors by training. Arguably, high-level programming languages like Python are the most expressive and efficient ways that humankind has conceived to formally define complex processes. It's hard to imagine a better way to express non-trivial business logic and convert mathematical concepts into an executable form. However, not all Python code is equal. Python written in Jupyter Notebooks following the tradition of data-centric programming is very different from Python used to implement a scalable web server. To make the data scientists maximally productive, we want to provide supporting software architecture in terms of APIs and libraries that allow them to focus on data, not on the machines. Data science layers. With these five layers, we can present a highly productive data-centric software interface that enables iterative development of large-scale data-intensive applications. However, none of these layers help with modeling and optimization. We cannot expect data scientists to write modeling frameworks like PyTorch or optimizers like Atom from scratch. Furthermore, there are steps that are needed to go from raw data to features required by models. Model operations. When it comes to data science and modeling, we separate three concerns, starting from the most practical, progressing towards the most theoretical. Assuming you have a model, how can you use it effectively? Perhaps you wanna produce predictions in real time or as a batch process. No matter what you do, you should monitor the quality of the results. Altogether, we can group these practical concerns in the model operations layer. There are many new tools in this space helping with various aspects of operations, including Selden for model deployments, weights and biases for model monitoring, and TrueERA for model explainability. Feature engineering. Before you have a model, you have to decide how to feed it with labeled data. 
Managing the process of converting raw facts to features is a deep topic of its own, potentially involving feature encoders, feature stores, and so on. Producing labels is another equally deep topic. You want to carefully manage consistency of data between training and predictions, as well as to make sure that there's no leakage of information when models are being trained and tested with historical data. We bucket these questions in the feature engineering layer. There's an emerging space of ML-focused feature stores such as Tekton or labeling solutions like Scale and Snorkel. Feature stores aim to solve the challenge that many data scientists in an organization require similar data transformations and features for their work, and labeling solutions deal with the very real challenge associated with hand-labeling datasets. Model development. Finally, at the very top of the stack, we get to the question of mathematical modeling. What kind of modeling technique to use? What model architecture is most suitable for the task? How to parameterize the model? Fortunately, excellent off-the-shelf libraries like Scikit-Learn and PyTorch are available to help with model development. An overarching concern, correctness and testing. Regardless of the systems we use at each layer of the stack, we want to guarantee the correctness of results. In traditional software engineering, we can do this by writing tests. For instance, a unit test can be used to check the behavior of a function with predetermined inputs. Since we know exactly how the function is implemented, we can convince ourselves through inductive reasoning that the function should work correctly based on the correctness of a unit test. This process doesn't work when the function, such as a model, is opaque to us. We must resort to black box testing, testing the behavior of a function with a wide range of inputs. Even worse, sophisticated machine learning applications take a huge number of contextual data points as inputs, like the time of day, user's past behavior, or device type into account. So an accurate test setup may need to become a full-fledged simulator. Since building an accurate simulator is a highly non-trivial challenge in itself, often it's easier to use a slice of the real world as a simulator and A-B test the application in production against a known baseline. To make A-B testing possible, all layers of the stack should be able to run many versions of the application concurrently, so an arbitrary number of production-like deployments can be run simultaneously. Now, this poses a challenge to many infrastructure tools of today, which have been designed for more rigid traditional software in mind. Besides infrastructure, effective A-B testing requires a control plane, a modern experimentation platform such as StatSig. How? Wrapping the stack for maximum usability. Imagine choosing a production-grade solution for each layer of the stack. For instance, Snowflake for data, Kubernetes for compute, container orchestration, that is, and Argo for workflow orchestration. While each system does a good job at its own domain, it's not trivial to build a data-intensive application that has cross-cutting concerns touching all the foundational layers. In addition, you have to layer the higher level concerns from versioning to model deployment on top of the already complex stack. It is not realistic to ask a data scientist to prototype quickly and deploy to production with confidence using such a contraption. Adding more YAML to cover cracks in the stack is not an adequate solution. Many data-centric environments of the previous generation, such as Excel and RStudio, really shine at maximizing usability and developer productivity. Optimally, we could wrap the production-grade infrastructure stack inside a developer-oriented user interface. Such an interface should allow the data scientists to focus on concerns that are most relevant for them, namely the topmost layers of the stack, while abstracting away the foundational layers. 
The combination of a production-grade core and a user-friendly shell makes sure that ML applications can be prototyped rapidly, deployed to production, and brought back to the prototyping environment for continuous improvement. The iteration cycle should be measured in hours or days, not in months. Over the past five years, a number of such frameworks have started to emerge, both as commercial offerings as well as open source. So Metaflow is an open source framework originally developed at Netflix, specifically designed to address this concern. How can we wrap robust production infrastructure in a single coherent, easy to use interface for data scientists? Under the hood, Metaflow integrates with best of breed production infrastructure, such as Kubernetes and AWS step functions, among many others, while providing a development experience that draws inspiration from data-centric programming. That is by treating local prototyping as a first-class citizen. Google's open source Kubeflow addresses similar concerns, although with a more engineer-oriented approach. As a commercial product, Databricks provides a managed environment that combines data-centric notebooks with a proprietary production infrastructure. All cloud providers provide commercial solutions as well, such as AWS SageMaker or Azure ML Studio. Now, while these solutions and many less known ones seem similar on the surface, there are many differences between them. So when evaluating solutions, do consider focusing on the three key dimensions covered in this article. One, does the solution provide a delightful user experience for data scientists and ML engineers? So there is no fundamental reason why data scientists should accept a worse level of productivity than is achievable with existing data-centric tools. Two, does the solution provide first-class support for rapid iterative development and frictionless A-B testing? It should be easy to take projects quickly from prototype to production and back, so production issues can be reproduced and debugged locally. Three, does the solution integrate with your existing infrastructure, in particular to the foundational data, compute, and orchestration layers? It is not productive to operate ML as an island. When it comes to operating machine learning and production, it is beneficial to be able to leverage existing production tooling for observability and deployments, for example, as much as possible. It is safe to say that all existing solutions still have room for improvement. Yet it seems inevitable that over the next five years, the whole stack will mature and the user experience will converge towards and eventually beyond the best data-centric IDEs. Businesses will learn how to create value with ML, similar to traditional software engineering and empirical data-driven development will take its place amongst other ubiquitous software development paradigms. So now it's time for our third and final audio essay for this episode. This final essay, When Models Are Everywhere, co-written with Mike Lukides, takes a combination of sociological and technical points of view to reason through what begins to happen when we interact with more and more machine learning models in our daily lives. Let's go. When models are everywhere. You probably interact with 50 to 100 machine learning products every day from your social media feeds and YouTube recommendations to your email spam filter and the updates that the New York Times, CNN, or Fox News decide to push, not to mention the hidden models that place ads on the websites you visit and that redesign your experience on the fly. Not all models are created equal, however. 
They operate on different principles and impact us as individuals and communities in different ways. They differ fundamentally from each other along dimensions such as alignment of incentives between stakeholders, creep factor, and the nature of how their feedback loops operate. To understand the menagerie of models that are fundamentally altering our individual and shared realities, we need to build a typology, a classification of their effects and impacts. This typology is based on concepts such as the nature of different feedback loops in currently deployed algorithms and how incentives can be aligned and misaligned between various stakeholders. Let's start by looking at how models impact us. Screens, feedback, and the entertainment. Many of the models you interact with are mediated through screens, and there's no shortage of news about how many of us spend our lives glued to them. Children, parents, friends, relatives, we are all subject to screens, ranging from screens that fit on our wrist to screens that occupy entire walls. You may have seen loved ones sitting on the couch, watching a smart TV while playing a game on an iPad, texting on their smartphones and receiving updates after updates on their Apple Watch, a kaleidoscope of screens of decreasing size. We even have apps to monitor and limit screen time. Limiting screen time has been an option on iPhones for over a year, and there are apps for iPhones and Android that not only monitor your children's screen time, they let you reward them for doing their chores or their homework by giving them more. Screen time itself has been gamified. Where are you on the leaderboard? We shouldn't be surprised. In the 70s, TV wasn't called the boob tube for nothing. In David Foster Wallace's novel, Infinite Jest, there's a videotape known as The Entertainment. When somebody watches it, they're unable to look away, no longer caring about food, shelter, or sleep, and they eventually enter a state of immobile, catatonic bliss. There's a telling sequence in which more and more people approach those watching it to see what all the hullabaloo is about and also end up with their eyes glued to the screen. Infinite Jest was published in 1996, just as the modern web was coming into being. It predates recommendation engines, social media, engagement metrics, and the recent explosion of AI, but not by much. And like a lot of near-future sci-fi, it's remarkably prescient. It's a shock to read a novel about the future and realize that you're living that future. The entertainment is not the result of algorithms, business incentives, and product managers optimizing for engagement metrics. There's no Facebook, Twitter, or even a web. It's a curious relic of the 80s and 90s that the entertainment appeared in the form of a VHS tape rather than an app. The entertainment is a tale of the webs that connect form, content, and addiction, along with the societal networks and feedback loops that keep us glued to our screens. David Foster Wallace had the general structure of the user-product interaction correct. That loop isn't new, of course. It was well known to TV network executives. Television only lacked the immediate feedback that comes with clicks, tracking cookies, tracking pixels, online experimentation, machine learning, and agile product cycles. Does the entertainment show people what they want to see? In a highly specific short-term sense, possibly. In a long-term sense, definitely not. Regardless of how we think of ourselves, humans aren't terribly good at trading off short-term stimulus against long-term benefits. That's something we're all familiar with. We'd rather eat bacon than vegetables. We'd rather watch Game of Thrones than do homework, and so on. Short-term stimulus is addictive. Maybe not as addictive as the entertainment, but addictive nonetheless. YouTube, conspiracy, and optimization. We've seen the same argument play out on YouTube. 
when their recommendation algorithm was optimized for how long users would keep their eyeballs on YouTube, resulting in more polarizing conspiracy videos being shown, we were told that YouTube was showing people what they wanted to see. Now, this is a subtle sleight of mind, and it's also wrong. As Zeynep Tufekci points out, this is analogous to an automated school cafeteria loading plates with fatty, salty, and sweet food because it has figured out that's what keeps kids in the cafeteria the longest. What's also interesting is that YouTube never wrote show more polarizing conspiracy videos into their algorithm. That was merely a result of the optimization process. YouTube's algorithm was measuring what kept viewers there the longest, not what they wanted to see, and feeding them more of the same. Light sugar and fat, conspiracy videos prove to be addictive, regardless of the viewer's position on any given cause. If the entertainment were posted to YouTube, it would be highly recommended on that platform. Viewers cannot leave. It's the ultimate virtual roach trap. If that's not engagement, what is? But it's clearly not what viewers want. Viewers certainly don't want to forget about food and shelter, not even for a great TV show. One result of this is that in 2016, out of a thousand videos recommended by YouTube after an equal number of searches for Trump and Clinton, 86% of recommended videos favored the Republican nominee. In retrospect, the recommendation algorithm's logic is inescapable. If you're a Democrat, Trump videos made you mad. If you're a Republican, Trump's content was designed to make you mad. And anger and polarization, bankable commodities that drive the feedback loop in an engagement-driven world. Another result is the weirdness encountered in certain parts of kids' YouTube, such as surprise eggs videos that depict, often at excruciating length, the process of unwrapping kinder and other egg toys. Some of these have up to 66 million views. These are all results of business incentives for both YouTube and its content providers, the metrics used to measure success, and the power of feedback loops on an individual level and in society, as manifested in modern big tech recommendation systems. It's important to note that the incentives of YouTube, its advertisers, and its users are often misaligned in that users searching for real news continually end up being shunted down conspiracy theory and quote-unquote fake news rabbit holes due to the mixed incentive structure of the advertising-based business model. Such mixed incentives were even noted by Google founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page in their 1998 paper, The Anatomy of a Large-Scale Hypertextual Web Search Engine, which details their first implementation of the Google search algorithm in Appendix A. And I mean, you have to check this out. In Appendix A, aptly titled Advertising and Mixed Motives, Brin and Page explicitly state that the goals of the advertising business model do not always correspond to providing quality search to users. And this, these are quotes. And we expect that advertising-funded search engines will be inherently biased towards the advertisers and away from the need of the consumers. Gulp. Also note that they refer to the user of search here as a consumer. Feedback loops filter bubbles, echo chambers, and incentive structures. YouTube is a case study on the impact of feedback loops on the individual. If I watch something for a certain amount of time, YouTube will recommend similar things to me for some definition of similar. Similarity is defined by broader societal interactions with, it, with content, resulting in what we now call filter bubbles, a term coined by internet activist Eli Parisa in his 2011 book, The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding From You. 
Netflix algorithm has historically resulted in similar types of recommendations and filter bubbles, although business incentives are now forcing them to surface more of their own content. Twitter and Facebook have feedback loops that operate slightly differently because every user can be both a content provider and a consumer, and the recommendations arise from a network of multi-sided interactions. If I'm sharing content and liking content, the respective algorithms will show me more that is similar to both, resulting in what we now call echo chambers. These echo chambers represent a different kind of feedback that doesn't just involve a single user. It's a feedback loop that involves the user and their connections. The network that directly impacts me is that of my connections and the people I follow. We don't have to look far to see other feedback loops offline. There are runaway feedback loops in predictive policing, whereby more police are sent to neighborhoods with higher reported and predicted crime, in quotes, resulting in more police being sent there and more reports of crime and so on. Due to the information and power asymmetries at play here, along with how such feedback loops discriminate against specific socioeconomic classes, projects such as white-collar crime risk zones, which maps predictions of white-collar crime, are important. An application that hospitals use to screen for patients with high-risk conditions that require special care wasn't recommending care for black patients as often. White patients spend more on healthcare, making their conditions appear to be more serious. While these applications look completely different, the feedback loop is the same. If you spend more, you get more care. If you police more, you make more arrests. And the cycle goes on. Note that in both cases, a major part of the problem was also the use of proxies for metrics. Cost as a proxy for health, police reports as a proxy for crime. Not dissimilar to the use of YouTube view time as a proxy for what a viewer wants to watch. Now, for more on metrics and proxies, we highly recommend the post, The Problem with Metrics is a Big Problem for AI by Rachel Thomas, who at that point in time was director of the Center for Applied Data Ethics at USF. There are also interaction effects between many models deployed in society that mean they feed back into each other. Those most likely to be treated unfairly by the healthcare algorithm are more likely to be discriminated against by models used in employment hiring flows and more likely to be targeted by predatory payday loan ads online, as detailed by Cathy O'Neill in Weapons of Math Destruction. Google search operates at another scale of network feedback, that of everybody. When I search for artificial intelligence, the results aren't only a function of what Google knows about me, but also of how successful each link has been for everybody that has seen it previously. Google search also operates in a fundamentally different way to many modern recommendation systems. Historically, it has optimized the results to get you off its platform, though recently its emphasis has shifted. Whereas so many tech companies optimize for engagement with their platforms, trying to keep you from going elsewhere, Google's incentive with search was to direct you to another site, most often for the purpose of discovering facts. Under this model, there is an argument that the incentives of Google, advertisers, and users were all aligned, at least when searching for basic facts. All three stakeholders want to get the right fact in front of the user, at least in theory. This is why search weighs long clicks more heavily than short clicks. The longer the time before the user clicks back to Google, the better. Now that Google has shifted to providing answers to questions rather than links to answers, they are valuing engagement with their platform over engagement with other advertisers. As an advertiser, you're more likely to succeed if you advertise directly on Google's result page. Even more recently, Google announced its incorporation of BERT, 
which are bi-directional encoder representations from Transformers, a technology enabling anyone to train their own state-of-the-art question answering system. So incorporating BERT into search, which will allow users to make more complex and conversational queries and will enable you to search in a way that feels natural for you. So according to Google, this is one of the biggest leaps forward in the history of search. Fundamental changes in search to encourage more complex queries could also result in a shift of incentives. Also, this theoretical alignment of incentives between Google advertisers and users is a total idealization. In practice, Google search encodes all types of cultural and societal biases, such as racial discrimination, as investigated in Sophia Noble's wonderful book, Algorithms of Oppression. An example of this is that for many years, when using Google image search with the keyword beautiful, the results would be dominated by photos of white women. In the words of Ruha Benjamin, associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, race and technology are co-produced. A final word for now on developing healthy Google search habits and practices. Know that the search engine optimization industry is worth close to $80 billion and that the way your served results and the potential misalignment of incentives depends on whether your search is informational, navigational, or transactional. So informational is searching for information, such as who was the 44th president of the United States. Navigational is searching for a particular website, such as Wikipedia. Transactional is searching to buy something, such as buy masterclass subscription. So keep a skeptical mind about the results you're served. Personalization of search results may be handy in the short term. However, when making informational searches, you're being served what you regularly assume is ground truth but is tailored to you based on what Google already knows about your online and increasingly offline behavior. There is also an information asymmetry in that you don't know what Google knows about you and how that information plays into the incentives of Google's ad-based business model. For informational searches, this could be quite disturbing. As Jaron Lanier points out in 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, how would you feel if Wikipedia showed you and I different histories based on our respective browser activities? Take this a step further. What if Wikipedia tailored the quote-unquote facts served to us as a function of an ad-based business model? For advertisers, incentive systems are also strangely skewed. We recently searched for Stitch Fix on Google the online personal styling service. This is a basic navigational search and Google could easily have served us the Stitch Fix website and they did, but above it were two advertisements. The first one was for Stitch Fix and the second one was for Trunk Club, a Stitch Fix competitor. This means that Trunk Club is buying ads for the keywords of their competitor, a common practice, and Stitch Fix then has to engage in defensive advertising due to how much traffic Google search has, even when the user is clearly looking for their product. As a result, the user sees only ads above the scroll, at least on a cell phone, and needs to scroll down to find the correct and obvious search result. There is an argument that if a user is explicitly searching to buy a product, it should be illegal for Google to force the product in question into defensive advertising. Towards a typology of model impacts and effects, YouTube, the Facebook feed, Google search, and Twitter are examples of modern algorithms and models that alter our perceptions of reality. Applications like predictive policing reflect biased perceptions of reality that may have little to do with actual reality. Indeed, these models create their own realities, becoming self-fulfilling prophecies. They all operate in different ways and on different principles. The nature of the feedback loop, the resulting phenomena, and the alignment of incentives between users, platform, content providers, and advertisers are all different. 
In a world that's increasingly filled with models, we need to assess their impact, identify challenges and concerns, and discuss and implement paths in the solution space. This first attempt at a model impact and effect classification probes several models that are part of our daily lives by looking at the nature of their feedback loops and the alignment of incentives between stakeholders, model builders, users, and advertisers. Other key dimensions to explore include creep factor, hackability factor, and how networked the model itself is. For example, is it constantly online and retrained? Such a classification will allow us to assess the potential impact of classes of models, consider how we wish to interact with them, and to propose paths forward. This work is part of a broader movement of users, researchers, and builders who are actively engaged in discovering and documenting how these models work, are deployed, and what their impacts are. If you are interested in exploring the space, we encourage you to check out the non-exhaustive reading list below. And you can find this reading list at the bottom of the essay, which we link to in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.